All right. Yeah, why don't we open up to uh, Hebrews 12. And thank you, Jess, for that scripture verse. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder, uh, Hebrews 12. I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I've had a very busy week, very, very busy week at, 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 at my day gig being a, a history teacher, obviously, you know, unprecedented times in terms of uh, current events. And praise the Lord, you know, I, I, I by nature don't like Facebook because if by nature I liked Facebook, I, I mean, I would really have a horrible week. Um, and so, you know, it, but with that being said, it's, it's, been, it's been an exhausting week uh, physically and, and spiritually in many regards. Um, if, 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 if you allow the things of the world to begin to attach to you, right? Uh, and, you know, you can't. And you can't now, right? But um, we're going to start a sermon series. I'm calling it the Wanderlust series. Uh, and this is an idea that I've been, I've been milling over and thinking about for, for years. I'll be honest, ever since I was like in my 20s. Uh, because I, I saw a pattern in a lot of believers. And um, once I got into my 30s, you know, whatever, I thought about it. And now that I'm 40, uh, I was talking to uh, some, of the other, uh, some of the other guys um, in the church. And uh, we, you know, we were brainstorming. He was like, yeah, this would be a good, um, a good series to get people... Well, to put like the guardrails up, I guess, on the roadway, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, we're calling it the Wanderlust series. And uh, the first uh, piece of the series is find your Goliath, right? And so I want to talk about a little bit about what this concept of Wanderlust is. And then also, obviously, plug in into what's this concept of a Goliath principle. And so let's begin with uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, <clears throat> since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Oh, let's, let's, whew, right there. Whomever is talking, whether it's Paul or Apollos or whoever it may be, it says here that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Right? That is usually a reference most people would say to an understanding of like a heavenly realm and those who have come before us and the angelic host, pretty much essentially like looking down uh, at what is happening on planet Earth. We're surrounded by a witness of heaven. Like witness, or rather heaven, sees what we are doing. And because of that, like it's kind of like be mindful of that there is, you know, the divine realm is watching us. And so because of some of that, we should be laying aside weights. Not weights, but every weight. Everything and anything that could be holding us Back from running the race of the gospel. Right? It doesn't say lay behind this and lay behind that and lay behind that. It says lay behind every weight. Okay? Anything that is holding you back in the furtherance of the gospel, any of that easily ensnares us in sin and all that, it all should be laid behind, right? And looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set, sat down at the right-hand throne of the Father of God. So, part of the power and the ability to do this would be to look. Look to Jesus. But not just like look at Jesus as a cloud of witnesses. It's like, look to Jesus as his life. He laid down his life. He picked up the cross. For consider him who 
endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. This is, br- this is brilliant. It's like if you're discouraged about how difficult life could be or the annoyance of having to lay down everything that may ensnare you from the gospel, um, well, just let's take a look at Jesus and, uh, yeah, look what he did. And this one, I, I, this one is really convicting for those of you who are wrestling with sin in your life. I mean, this is, and you have, I'm sorry, you have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Oh, what is it saying here? Like, your life is actually, no matter how difficult it may be in the first century, you have not had to actually resist the powers of darkness and resist sin itself to the place of you literally bleeding, right? I mean, that's what Jesus did, right? He bled on the cross. But it's like, holy cow, like, Think about like, oh, I'm really having a hard time with my sin. It's like, you haven't even gone to the place of bloodshed yet. You know, I mean, one really easy way, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, 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 the end all be all that we always talk about, but it's like, you know, if you're struggling with the internet, throw your computer out, you know. It's not that hard to do. You throw out the computer. You're not even bleeding yet, right? You know, if, if, you're, if you're struggling with food, uh, don't keep certain items in the house. Like, you haven't even gone onto the place of bloodshed yet. It's like, this, this is the, this is what, this is the pep talk. It's like, woohoo, all right, okay? I mean, sitting her eyes on Jesus is what we're talking about here, right? Wander lust, when your eye wanders, okay? Uh, and so what is wander lust really defined? It's defined, you know, from Merriam-Webster, is that it's a strong, innate desire to travel or to wander. But, you know, that's a very, like, uh, basic physical definition. We really want to take it into a spiritual principle. I mean, who here likes to travel? I mean, I love to travel. I don't feel I have wanderlust. I mean, I, would, I love traveling. I have a strong desire to travel. I love it. That's not really what we're talking about this principle here, right? We're talking about a traveling in a spiritual gaze. That's really what we're talking about, right? A lust and a wander on other things. Not that you literally... Oh, I really need to now move to this location, or I really need to go on vacation here. That's 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 silly. Talking about it in the spirit is a. Are you prone to wander and set your gaze and your eyes on other things, other places, other places not being the cross? So, um, essentially, if, if if this is going on, and we can see it, like people that actually may have this kind of wanderlust physical mentality. Uh, but also really in the spirit, it's this. It's really what we're talking about, I think, is a person or a spiritual place in your heart, your mind, your ethos, where you're never really content, right? Now, I've struggled with this my entire life, okay? My entire life, I have been essentially, in some regards, discontent, always trying to charge the next hill, go to the next thing, do the next whatever, right? I mean, I'm content in the Lord, but I'm talking about like in the natural, right? I want to go to the next thing and conquer the next mountain and go after it, right? Uh, but really, in the spirit, this, this, this can be quite problematic, right? So what is this real perception of the wanderlust? It's someone who's always looking around the bend. They're never looking here. They're never here. They're never present. They're always looking to get there. But once you are there, it is now here. And the new thing, the new place, loses its luster, and the cycle begins again. 
It's like a, a kid who's like, man, I'm in, I'm in elementary school. I can't wait to go to junior high. You get to junior high, you're at junior high. Oh, my gosh, I've always wanted to be in junior high. We've got lockers now. And it's like, oh, oh, man, no, no, I can't wait to get to high school. I want to get to high school. And you get to high school, and then by after your freshman year, you're like, oh, my goodness, PSATs, SATs, college choices, all this kind of stuff. Ah, man, I, I just can't wait to be a senior when I can just take it easy. Then you become a senior in high school, and you're sitting, you're like, oh, I just can't wait to be done school. Can't wait to start a career, just open up a job, go to a trade school, go to college, all this kind of stuff. And it's always like it's never quite good enough. I mean, maybe to update it for some of us here, you know, I'm single. It's really going to be cool when I'm married. Then you get married, and you're like, this is really cool, but it maybe it's like it would be even better if we had a kid. Then you have a kid, and you're living in an apartment. You're like, you know what, it's really cool, but you know what, it would be even better if we got a house. Then you get the house, and you're like, you know what, it would be better? Oh, man, when I get to retire one day. I just can't wait to retire. Then I can really, really, Dave, stop walking around so much. Okay. Then I'll really find the place of contentment, right? And then you're retired, no longer working. Your kids are all grown up. You forget how to do a locker combination. And if you don't have the mentality, what's the next stage? Death. And new life, but you know what I'm saying. Like, that's when you get those real cranky, cantankerous older people, right? Like, they can no longer fool people in being happy because there's nowhere else to go. Right? I mean, everyone else can fool, like, oh, I'll be happy when I get to this next stage and get this new thing. But when you're, you know, you're old and you're sitting wherever, uh, you know, living your life, right, and, and you're not have a, a contentment inside yourself, what's there to be happy about? Right? That's the problem. All right. Now, this is kind of a, an interesting thing because it really, this kind of here, there principle of wanderlust in some regards uh, is actually a human development. I mean, this is something that humans are really great at. In, in fact, the history of mankind is one of this, right? It's this. Man has a pro- mankind has a problem, some kind of small problem, like, or maybe a big problem. Like, man, eating raw meat really isn't so great. I wish we could, like, heat it up somehow. How do we make a fire, right? No, they have a problem, and there's a discomfort, and they come up with some kind of new technique, some kind of new invention, some kind of new discovery, and it's like, Wow, this is great. We can cook things now. But then it's like, well, we can cook things and we have heat, but how do I register and really get the temperature right? And now I got a new problem. Man, I really need to get it like at 350 degrees, not 375, because that 25 degree difference is really going to change everything. Right? Uh, and so what this is, 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 is really like, it's like necessity is the mother of all invention, but really what it is, is it's discomfort. That is the mother of all invention, is really what happens. Josh, I tell you what, if you uh, shut down my computer, bring it back up, it'll fool that. I think it's like some kind of weird setting. I don't think it's the cord. Speaking of discontentment and invention, right? I'm always positive, because we, we had that happen once before. Yeah, just shut down the whole thing and, and bring it back up. All right, cool. All right, so, you know, let's focus on the word here. Who cares about the computer screens, right? Yeah? <laughs> So, what we have here is this. It's a pattern. You have a problem. There's a discomfort. You create a solution, and now you have a new discomfort that emerges, and now you have to find a new solution, right? That is the way, in many regards, of of human development and progress of civilization, but it's ridiculous. It's, like, absolutely ridiculous how pathetic we become, right? It's like, oh, the house is so hot. The air conditioning is not completely working. Like, 
No one ever had that problem in human history until there was the creation of the air conditioning, right? It's 100% true. Like, come on, anyone grow up without air conditioning? Is anyone really like that uncomfortable? I mean, it's hot, but you like, you drink some cold lemonade, you open up the windows, or God forbid, you sleep outside, not on the porch. You know, it's like, can't do that. This is what happens. Our discomfort grows on the most petty of things. And why is that happening? Because mankind seemingly has been networked inside of their mind to do the problem solving. And that can easily develop a person who is, well, discomforted very easily. It really is. Uh, And so really what's going on here is that this creates spiritual implications because this has been the journey of mankind. Everything we have that has been discovered, invented, and created has been based off of that principle. I have a problem. It's discomforting. I want to solve it. We make a new thing. History, all lowercase. Praise the Lord, I don't have to change it because there's nothing on my computer that goes any kind of warning, right? Amen. But I hear you saying, right? There might be some bank stuff on there, so. Josh, if money comes out of my bank account, I know why. <laughs> All right, so this raises like these, these spiritual implications, right? Uh, and, and, and I find this uh, in, in the church, and it's this. Uh, for some people, and I, I want to stress this, this is not all people, right? But I, I really, like always, you know, let's do a little heart check, a little heart posture of where you're at with things. Some people I have found, um, in order to feel fulfilled, one pursues a new task. They need to go to a new place in the spirit. And I'm not talking about geographical location, but it's a thing of I'm not feeling fulfilled, and I now need to set my gaze on something else. Right? And there's a balance here because, you know, that could be a place of growth. Like the Lord is growing you into new things and into new authority. But if you're a person that like is, is, is like, I am not satisfied in my spiritual walk with the Lord if I cannot do X. If I can't be on the worship team. If I can't preach, you know, once a month or once a quarter. Th- there's something off there. There's something significantly off uh, because you're trying to find fulfillment in a task, in a new place. Now, with that being said, it also could be that the Lord is preparing you and getting you ready for a calling that he has for you. And obviously there's a balance and you need some maturity in order to do that. But what I, what I do believe here is that there is a larger macro principle amongst the big C church itself. So let's remove it from the individuality. The big C church, in, in, in many regards, in the West, I think has not been setting their gaze on the right task. They're not setting their gaze on the right place in order to feel fulfilled that they are doing something for the kingdom, they set their eyes on other tasks. And they kind of fool themselves. Okay? Now, this is, this is not a, a green uncle, Pastor Dave uh, perception. This was actually uh, articulated in some regards back in the day with the, uh, with the story of Don Quixote. Right? And it's a concept of what's called chasing windmills or tilting windmills is what it's called. Now, in the, in the story, what's going on here is uh, Don Quixote is, is, is trying to pursue the, the, the passion of a lover, essentially. And he goes out saying that he's going to, like, rid the land of giants and of enemies. And there are none. 
But in order to prove his self-worth, his psychosis, his psychology, he starts pretending and he starts believing that windmills are these evil marauders. Okay? And it's a concept, and it's kind of like a, a spiritual psychological principle that there are people who develop from their own spiritual lack. They develop these false giants in the land to go after. Why? Because you are not being fulfilled in the here with Jesus. So you have to come up with a new problem. What's the new problem? Oh my gosh, the finances are not where they are. Like, do you remember where you were 10 years ago? Like, compare your bank account now to where you were 10 years ago and then see if it really is a problem. Now, it could be. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, as your life gets more complicated, you need more things, and now you will artificially create problems. And you do it in the spirit as well. You can. I'm not saying you do, but people do this. They start coming up with these problems and these giants that they need to face to thwart what's really going on. You're not satisfied. And you're not satisfied enough with Jesus. And you're not satisfied enough with picking up your cross daily. And you feel that you have to prove your passion for a lover who is Christ through a different means by going after these false things. Now, here's the problem. Isaiah says it a different way. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed, Isaiah 57. And the question here is, in your spiritual walk and the big C church, particularly of the West, what are we setting our eyes on like flint? Now, there's a whole list of things that we can write down. And I'm telling you right now, 99% of them are wrong. We are to set our eyes like flint to the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring the kingdom of God. Now, let's work with you here. There are people in the Western church that have set their eyes like flint on the Lord, the gospel, the Great Commission. Awesome. You can shut off the camera right now. You could, wherever you're listening, you can shut it off. You don't have to listen to this, I guess. And then there are other people that set their eyes like flint on other things. Pursuit of wealth, pursuit of health, pursuit of worry. I mean, you're setting your eyes like flint to just worry about things and then come up with new things to worry about and then new things to come up to worry about. It's the same pattern, right? Discomfort, solution, oh my gosh, there must be something else wrong. No, there isn't anything else wrong. But the mind fabricates it to keep you going, right? Because you don't have a real problem. So if you don't have a real problem, you come up with fake problems. Keep the mind energized, right? I'm getting some head like, yep, right? So how do you, how do you take, now, that's not necessarily, it's bad, but it's not so bad because I like it. You have the character to set your heart like flint on something. We just need to reposition it to something else. I can work with that. Or rather, the Lord can work with that. It's like, man, like, you have a character and a, 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 you know, hard-nosed kind of attitude to go after things. We just need to corral it a little bit, right? You have passion. It's passion for the wrong stuff. So we just need to recalibrate it, and it's going to be awesome. But the third problem is, is, is really a problem. Those people that have no passion, those people that have no unction, those people are just like, whatever. Wow. 
Set your eyes and your face like flint. Right? Now, we may not be doing that because of this kind of wanderlust principle. So let's go, and we're going to connect this to last week. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I was talking about this uh, last week, and this is really kind of turning the hinge, turning the corner. But, you know, let's be here. We don't have to be there, right around the bend. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David. But David remained at Jerusalem. And this is such a powerful little piece of the verse. Then it happened. Then it happened. Then it happened one evening that David rose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Right? We know the story of Bathsheba. We know what happens. Okay? And last week what I was doing here I, I, to connect things a little bit was I was showing that what we have here is this. If you allow your giftings, your passions, the talents, the things that the Lord has given you, if you allow that gifting to lead your character, you will end up like a King Saul, right? He's a king, he's gifted as a king, and it goes bad. But if you allow your character, the fruits of the Spirit, to lead your giftings, you get a King David who is a shepherd boy, who knew how to take care of the lion and the bear, and his character was forged in the Judean desert, and then he receives a gifting to become a king. Right? It's very important. And if you kind of like that kind of energy, you can listen to last week's sermon. But there's also a third case, which I believe that the church at large is really at, and that is you start really well like David, and slowly and eventually you allow the gifting to get to your head. And it thwarts or outpaces your godly character. And then what happens is you have a 2 Samuel 11 moment. David should not be sitting on top of a rooftop as a king when you're supposed to be going out to war. And he, what is he doing? There is a wanderlust. He's setting his eyes on something else. Not what he's supposed to be doing. It's really about wanderlust. So what's going on here? He's, he, he's, he's wandering from the mission. He's not sending his eyes like flint and his face like flint. He has looked to another mission. The wrong mission. And here's the problem. The problem is David, in fact, did not kill all the Goliaths in the land. When he was a boy, apparently, he didn't kill all of them. There one, one remained. The Goliath inside. I mean, this is almost comical. There are people in the church, right? We want to go out and storm the valley and take out the giants and do all this kind of stuff. And it's like, man, you haven't dealt with the Goliath inside of you yet. And that's what happened to David. Hence his eyes went astray when sitting on top of a rooftop. The greatest Goliath of all is the self, the internal, the carnal man. And I'm just saying this, right? If we do not set our eyes on he that has bought you, that has redeemed you, 
if you don't set your eyes on that, then you, I, and the church at large will end up on a rooftop staring at something that is not yours. What's going on here? David doesn't deal with the giants of his own life. He doesn't deal with the internal here. And he doesn't do the mission, the mission of the king to go out and fight. So what does he end up doing? He ends up conquering something else. Another man's wife. Please, I, I don't like, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm not trying to tell you that like women should be conquered, but I think the notion of conquering, you can understand the imagery here. David is trying to physically conquer a woman that's not his wife and is actually one of his brothers in the kingdom of God or kingdom of Israel's wife. He's trying to conquer. It's, it's a symbol that he's going after something that he wants to take and have authority in, quote unquote, that was not for him. Why does David, beloved of God, man after God's own heart, do this? Because he stopped facing the giants that he was supposed to be going after. He stopped facing the giants, and so his gaze began to wander. So, we can agree to disagree. And you've had much of a problem with it. You, like I said last week, you can email Pastor Josh. Now, we could talk about it. And before I just release this, because this is going to get some of you fired up in a negative way, okay? Pray about it. Pray about it. I may not be saying you as an individual. I'm talking about a group, the plural you, the church at large. And if you have that much of a problem about it, we can talk about it, honestly, and dialogue about it. But it's this. I really do believe that the Western church, the church at large, has been sitting on a rooftop during a time when the church is supposed to be going out to battle and finding the right, the right giants, when the church is supposed to be finding the right giants, we've gotten a little comfortable sitting in our palace and we're trying to conquer something that's not ours to be conquered. And it's a political kingdom. It's a White House. We have been trying to conquer the wrong giant. Now, you yourself may not be. And I do believe we have an absolute call to pray and to intercede and to vote the right way. A hundred and thousand percent. And anyone who's been here long enough knows I've been teaching that over and over again. But there are some of us in the church who have been out of balance and we're sitting on a rooftop gazing at the lust of a woman, and her name is the White House. And her name is Lady Liberty. And you're putting all of her energy into that. Well, the woman down the street is about to have an abortion. And she needs money, so she doesn't have an abortion. Or there's a person down the street that is lost. But, you know, they have the opposing political figure bumper sticker on, so you may not talk to them. Or if you do talk to them, all it's about is the White House. Now, I want to really, really stress this 
we have a purpose to live out our political convictions. We have a, we have a purpose to vote the way in which we believe the Lord is directing us to vote. Do we have a, a purpose to be a mouthpiece to what we believe to be the right course of action of things? Absolutely. If you remain silent, evil continues. But we need to make sure that it's not a windmill that you're trying to chase. If you're going after all of the White House stuff and the political stuff and your life and your family is a mess, what are you doing? Don't worry about the White House so you worry about your house. King David could kill a Goliath. Why? Because he dealt with his initial internal giants, his individual giants. He wouldn't have to lie in the bear by himself. Once he got those done, then he was prepared for the external Goliaths of the land. But remember, he lost the principle because he chose to go after the wrong things to conquer. And I believe that really what's been going on here is the greater church for the last 40 years is going after the wrong giant. We're supposed to be sending our gaze on the Lord. We're supposed to be sending our gaze on bringing his kingdom. That's not going to be done by any governmental system that is of man. And if it did, holy cow, we do not want that. It's called the Catholic Church. Go look at the history of the Catholic Church. Bringing God's kingdom by man is a not a good scenario. We want Jesus to return. We want to see the kingdom of God proliferate from the ground up. But at the same time, live out our political convictions. Of course, it's America. It's a gift. But we have to keep our gaze on the mission. The mission is the gospel on the people down the street and the gospel at your work and your family. That's it, man. And so here's the thing, you know, we were all designed to fight giants. That's the beauty of it. And so if you're not fighting the right giant, your body, your mind, your spirit wants to find another giant to fight because you were designed to do that. But if you don't fight the right giant, you're going to go after something else, and then you wander. Your eyes are off the kingdom of the Lord. And so wanderlust, as I was, I was saying here, is, is, is not just travel. That's kind of ridiculous. What it is is it's a gaze at best. And it is lust at worst. Praise this. This is in the spirit. Wanderlust in the spirit, at best, is just a gaze at the profane, at the thing that is not yours. At best, it's lust. I'm sorry, at worst, it's lust. Thank you. At best, it's a gaze. At worst, it's a lust. Okay? And, and really, what I'm getting at here is this. It, it, it's a distraction to a new medium through a profane modality. A distraction to a new medium through a profane modality. Or really, in English, what am I saying here? It's when we're using our energy, our resources for another. Not for the spirit, not for Jesus, not for the kingdom. Our energy, our spiritual energy, our spiritual time, everything is being used for a different thing. That is the wanderlust. 
Um, very common things, of course, uh, would just be like, you know, the TV, the Facebook, the surfing through the Internet. I mean, all this kind of stuff, anything that takes your time, or dare I say even a hyper amount of time on political conversation. I really do believe if the church spent half, half the amount of time that we spent on Facebook evangelizing for a certain political party, we spent that time evangelizing for Jesus, like, probably like revival all throughout the streets. What's that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how much time and energy we're putting into it. Although, look, I put time into TV. Sometimes my wife says too much. Okay. But I put, I put time in things. But there's a time where you got to, like, balance it out, right? Uh, and so why do people wander? And what it is, is it's, it's Jesus is not enough. The giants of my own life and, 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 and in my community is not enough. And so I'm going to start going to other things. Why do people do this? I do believe there's a general principle in the physical and also in the spirit, and it's this. One, you may have a dissatisfaction in your life. If you're dissatisfied, you will be prone to wander. Like you, might, you actually might be dissatisfied that the present development of the kingdom of God is not going fast enough. So, or I'm dissatisfied with how God's doing it, so I'm going to do it in my own means could be that, right? Which obviously is very dangerous, right? Uh, two, uh, we could have a sense of jealousy, right? If someone else has this, uh, th- has this, or another person has this type of uh, notice and notoriety in the kingdom of God or at the church, and there's a jealousy that's there, and you may be prone to wander. I mean, how many times in my short term being a pastor, I've seen that, right? Someone comes in, they're like, I have this gifting, I have this desire, I think I should be doing this. I'm like, hey, we don't really know you. Just wait a little time. And that's not good enough for them. So they go off to another place. Like, how is it that these people are doing these things, right? And so, yeah, there's, there's jealousy. Or, you know, my life really stinks right now. I'm dissatisfied with my life. Let me go on Facebook, and now I get to become more jealous, right? <laughs> jealous of other people, right? Third kind of thing uh, is uh, a notion of fear. So you try to wander, and you look to other gods. I mean, that, that is the notion of Israel, right? They didn't feel like God was doing what they thought he should do. They become afraid, like, what, I'm not going to get what I want and what I need. And so they start pursuing other gods, right? That happens all the time. Uh, a sense of anger, a feeling of loneliness, a sense of curiosity that will bring a hope. And what's the hope? To make things better outside of the cross. You try to make things better by your own doing. And so if this develops, you start to wander. Your spiritual eyes go elsewhere. Jesus and the cross is no longer good enough. I need to find other means to get my will met. And I'll grab at anything I can. That's what David was doing. But that only happens when you do what you were not born to do. And so I want to talk about lust. It's always a nice one to talk about in church. Wanderlust in the spirit is not just wandering. It's also lust. And I think we have a a, a bad understanding of what lust is. Right? The most famous context and where most of us get our theology from uh, is from the book of Matthew. And uh, Mario, if you can come on down, please. 
Matthew 5. And I hope and pray all this is making sense. Matthew 5, 28. All right, this is just like the introduction to this sermon series, Wanderer. Uh, Matthew 5, 28, this is where we get most of our theology from lust and understanding of it. But you can't really get theology from one verse. you got you to take a look at a whole bunch of things. Jesus is saying, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? There it is. Boom. And so, like, every youth group, every boy is, like, freaking out that they're going to, like, commit adultery for the rest of their life or something. Right? Like, you know, yeah, being, a, being a boy in youth group, you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, look at this. If I even look in the wrong way, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, like, I'm telling you, us guys, you're perv heart, you start freaking out. But let's understand lust. Lust and the profane nature of lust is not just sexual, right? Let's take a look at 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Look, he's not talking about like three different times, about three different types of like lustful eyes. Really, what we have here is, is lust is, is, is different than just the, the, what we think about the sexual nature of things. You can lust after many things. In fact, here it says, you know, lusting of, of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. And really what we have here is, is lust defined as an internal desire. But we all have desires. That doesn't mean it's lust. Uh, lust is an internal desire that is a need that cannot be satisfied. Like, it's just, it's consistent. Like, whatever you get, you need more, right? It's like someone who's addicted to a drug. Like, you're never satisfied. You've got to go after more of it, Right? That's the feeling of lust. Uh, we take a look at it in like intellectual kind of manners of how the mind operates. It's this. Lust is essentially, it's the governor. It's the thing that governs the intellect. It's the will. I mean, lust, when it operates, overrides your brain. Like you know it's wrong, but you have to do it anyway. You no longer have control of your thoughts. Right? You have to do it. You have to go after it, right? Uh, in the Hebrew, uh, lust is, is, is defined or rather is used as a Hebrew word, yetzer hara. And I think this is very interesting. I think this is really when we get into the, the real understanding of the biblical concept of lust. Yetzer hara. Uh, it's really defined in, in, in most of the English Bibles as your evil inclination. And the way that Judaism defines lust is really this, is that it's when man uses, or rather, when man misuses good things. I really like that. Because you can lust after anything. Sexual intercourse within the appropriate confines of marriage is good and by the Lord. But it can be misused. Eating food is good, but it can be misused. Getting on stage and leading worship is good, but it can be misused. Preaching the gospel from a pulpit is good, but it can be misused. What are you trying to fulfill? The lust of the eyes, the flesh, the pride of life. 
Lust is to take anything and to take anyone and commodify it. What does that mean? To commodify is to dehumanize. It's to despiritualize. When you make a person or a thing or even an animal a machine, a piece of technology that is used to fulfill my desire. We do that with food all the time. There is no holiness in food anymore. Right, Steve? No holiness. No holiness. I'm reading a book right now. I'm getting like spiritually wrecked about the holiness of food. I was actually thinking about buying you a copy. I mean, the commodification of all things is really a lust of all things. Right? We eat food to get the pleasure and to fill our belly. But what happened to the sanctity of it? A holy act of it. I mean, it's so holy that it is the precipice for all of sin and all of holiness. Do not eat of this tree, only eat of that tree. That's how important it is. But we've commodified and lusted after it. So what is this thing that I'm trying to get at, which I'm not sure if it even makes sense, but you know what? It's been a really crazy week. I like you guys there. I can just like look at you and you're always smiling. The sole purpose of understanding really lust is this. It is using anyone, anything to try to solely and only gratify the fleshly man. You can lust after anything and anyone. I am telling you, this is going to really upset many of you guys, particularly the males. It is actually possible to lust after your wife. And it's a sin. Yes. You are not called to lust after your spouse. You are called to love her. So what is lusting after your wife? You want to be intimate for what purpose? To fulfill your flesh? Or to love? The opposite of, love, of, of lust is to love. And to love is to give. To lust is to take. So yes, you can lust after your spouse and it's a sin before the eternal God. Because you're looking at intimacy just about fulfilling your own fleshly desire. You can get married off of the principle of lust. I want to get married so I'm no longer lonely. Lust of the flesh. We are to get married, if the Lord gives you that desire, to be a representation of the kingdom of God between Jesus and his church. Not so that you don't feel lonely. Sexual intercourse is a holy act. It's like, I think it's like the only thing that like says if, if you profane, right, in sexual things, you're profaning this. It's very, very specific how, how profane it is. And so, yes, we can lust after anything. You can lust after your house. You can lust after your food. You can lust after your spouse. You can lust after anything that is the sole measure is to give me. Give me. Gratify my flesh. Gratify me. And dare I say, it is also a sin. And I believe fervently that the Western church is on a major trajectory to be a people that lust after God. God, I'm in this to feel pleasure and to gratify me. 
I come to you because I want this. I come to you because I need this. I am using you as a means to get what I want. That is called a commodification of God. You're lusting after God. I think not for all of us, so don't think that I'm judging you. But for the broader church at large, my experience has been in the last week, in the last couple months, the church has been lusting after the government. What can you give me? This is what it's supposed to be. Give me this. This is what I want. The government shall be on his shoulders, and his shoulders is love. Why don't you go out and love? No, I want this party so I can this. No, why don't you go out and love? Stop lusting. Now, I'm also a social studies teacher, and I've said a thousand times, so I don't get the emails. There's importance to live out and do what you need to do as a citizen of the United States and to vocalize that. Amen, 100%. Uh, but let me tell you something. We have, like, we don't, I mean, we have dual citizenship, but not really. Our citizenship is of heaven. Don't let the American citizenship outweigh your heavenly citizenship, right? So the opposite of lust is to give, I mean, right? And to give is to love. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Listen, let's read this. And think, is this how you have been acting the last couple of weeks? Has this how, is this how you've been acting the last couple months? Is this the way that you act when you engage the church body? Is this the way that you act when you engage politics? Is this the way that you act when you engage Facebook? Is this the way that you, you act when you engage your spouse and your family and God himself? Because anything other than this is lust. And lust is the commodification of a relationship. Give me what I want. Gratify me. That's what it's about. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. You check your Facebook and see if that was there. You check your phone calls. You check your prayers to the Lord. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. If I'm supposed to love the Father, how much of my prayer life is seeking my own? I come to the Lord to give, not to seek my own, to seek Him and to seek His face and to seek His kingdom. To say I'm a bond servant of Christ. There's no lusting here because I'm your slave, which is the opposite of ownership. You own me. I don't own you, Father. What's your prayer? What is the vocabulary of your prayers like? Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Lust fails. Lust comes, fulfills what it wants, and then you need more of it. And it's not just sex. It's food. It's politics. 
gosh, it's even your relationship with God at times. The plural you, right? Not just you. And so, man, I feel that what's going on here with the wanderlust mentality is that we are looking to gratify ourselves and puff, our, puff ourselves up in the wrong places and with the wrong people, with the wrong purposes, and we're just simply chasing at tilted windmills. We're developing imaginary giants to fight, to conquer, when really the one that needs to be conquered is the one inside of you, because that's the one that's going to bring the kingdom. We can only go after these mythical creatures that we develop in our own mind. We can only do that when we are hiding in a palace, when it's the season for kings to go out to battle. A true battle. A battle for the kingdom, a battle for the gospel, for the name of the Lord to be hallowed. That is our fight. That is our commission from the Lord. That are the Goliaths. That, or those, are the mountains that we're supposed to be conquering. Those mountains. We want to bring your kingdom, Lord. In closing up, 1 Samuel 17, 45. Let's just get a little recap of a heart of a man who postured himself not to lust after the Lord, to love the Lord and to give back to his, his nation and to give back to his people and to give back unto his God. Unfortunately, that little boy, when he got his gifting all puffed up, he started to go away. But praise the Lord for Nathan. Praise the Lord for Nathan. The prophet says, you're busted, bro. And he comes clean. David, Psalm 51. And he redirects the ship. But look at this. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. We know the story. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you, and I'll take your head from you. And this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that all the earth, Lord, so all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Not so he can become king. Not so that he can get the king's daughter to be his wife. Not so he can prove to his brothers that they forsook him and it was the wrong thing. It's so, Lord, that the nation of Israel would know that there is a God. Then all this assembly, all the people and all the soldiers and all the people that are outside will know that the Lord does not save with sword and the Lord will not save with spear in the natural. For the Lord's battle, the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Why don't we stand? Oh, Father, I, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who don't wander. 
Lord, that we would be a people to set our eyes like flint on you. That everything we do and everything we say and every interaction would not be one of lust. It's trying to gratify the self and gratify the ego and puff ourselves up. Yes, Lord, I thank you that we live in a land where we have a democracy, or rather, a constitutional republic. But, Lord God, where we are able to vote and express our ideas. And, Lord, I know for some things have been really crazy, and for some it's not what the expectation that they thought. And it's not the expectation of what they even wanted. But you, in Daniel 9, say you are the one who bring down kings and raise them up. You are the one. You are the one that has eternity planned out. Father, let us look not to gratify the flesh in anything that we do, but let us look to love. Let us look to love our spouses, to love our family, to love the stranger street, to love you, Lord, to give back to you. Father, I pray that we we would even dare take care of those giants, those things that have to go inside of our own hearts and our own spirits. Because Lord, I don't want to be a man that sits on a rooftop and gazes at things that are not mine. And I'm not talking about adultery people. I'm talking about looking at those things on earth and say that is mine or that's the church's. No, I, I want you, King Jesus. I want you to go to battle. I want you to bring the increase. I want you to spread your kingdom. And however it looks like, Lord, you are in control. I want you to do it. Oh, Lord, I am not looking for a theocracy of man. I'm looking for the theocracy of Jesus, of your return. Lord, I do not want our nation to go down a path of authoritarianism. And Lord, I also do not want our country to go down the path of Catholicism that says that one person or one religious identity will be the ones that are making law. That's very dangerous, Lord. I want to be a people that have a hope and a want and a desire to preach the gospel to my neighbor, to preach the gospel to the grocery store clerk. Lord, to raise my hand, put my hands on the sick and see them healed. And then the kingdom of God is being manifested. And if that's the case, who cares? Who cares who sits in the Senate chambers? Who cares who sits on the throne of D.C.? Because the kingdom is erupting and goes like crazy. Jesus. And the gates of hell can't go against it. And revival in the nation breaks out. And the beauty of democracy is you get the government, not that you need. You get the government that you deserve. Come on, man. I'll part you with this. The church deserves to have abortion. Because we haven't stood up in prayer enough. Because we haven't evangelized enough. Because only one family in the church has adopted a baby. That's why it's time to live out our call, people. Pure religion is this. Pure religion is this. Take care.
care of the widow and the orphan. Lord, let us be a people with a lens to say, I want Jesus. I want Jesus crucified in my life. I want to be crucified in my life spiritually. I want to know the pain of your sufferings, Jesus. I want to know the power of the crucifixion and to know and gaze upon the power of the resurrection, as Paul says. Not a person or people that sits on top of a roof eating the grapes of the land. Lord, let the church realize that we've been lusting. But my Lord, he trains my hand for battle. But my Lord strengthens my arm to bend a bow of bronze. Let it be so in the spirit. In Jesus' name. Woo, have a wonderful week. Let's just spend, man, let's just spend this time, spend this week, man, just to come clean before the Lord. And just to get our hearts right. You know, I'm not saying you guys are going after the wrong giants. I, I, I want you to know this. If you were politically involved in the last couple months, I'm not saying that you made the government an action of lust. No, I'm not. Everyone knows, right, where their heart posture is. But it's so important, man. It's so important just to go to the Lord and say, I'm clean and undone before you. I'm clean and undone before you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so Pastor Josh is, uh, is, is feeling from the Lord to, to lead us before we go in a, in a prayer of repentance. Sorry, bro. A prayer of repentance if, if, you're, if, if you're inclined. And we're just going to open up this time. We're going to open up this space. It'll just be a time to gather with the Lord. So please have a wonderful week after Pastor Josh closes us out. But if you're staying in this space, we really want to give it a place for the Lord to minister. We just remember Jess, Annabelle, and Josh. We just have a quick little meeting. Have a wonderful week. Hope to see you on Wednesday. If not, God willing, I will see you on Sunday. Amen. All right. I don't, I don't often have the Lord impress things on me to come up and say because I have to walk all the way from the back of the room to the front of the room. <laughs> and uh, if my mic needs adjusting, uh, maybe Corolla can adjust it for me back there. Um, so... A little teaching on repentance. Repentance is turning from and turning to something. It's turning away from something and turning to something. It's having one thought in one way and saying, no, I'm not going to think that way. I'm going to think this way now. Okay, so repentance has got this maybe like scary notion of like, I did something wrong and now I'm, oh, woe is me kind of thing. But no, repentance is for your freedom. Repentance is so that God can work through you and move through you in the ways that he wants to work through you and move through you, right? So what I'm feeling led to do, and, and this is for me as much as it may be for anybody that's here and anybody that's watching, is to repent for, the, um, for putting our hope in anything other than God, for putting our faith in anything other than God. And now that might seem silly because there's good things that, are, that have been going on that we could put our hope and faith into, but ultimately as believers, as citizens of heaven, our hope belongs to God and our faith belongs to God. So if we put it in anything other than him, anything under than his ability to rescue us, anything in, under his ability to transform us, it's in the wrong spot, right? Amen? 
So, Father, so you guys can repeat after me if you want. I'm also, I think that we're going to open the altars up and you can, you don't have to do your business with me. You can do your business with Jesus. You can come to the altar and you can do your business with Jesus. You can, you can take the place that he's maybe been put in, in the wrong place and bring him back to where he is. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. So we're just going to lead you in a prayer of repentance. You can repeat after me if you want. You don't have to as well. You can do your business with the Lord in your seats. You can do your business with the Lord up front. So, Father, you've revealed to us, God, you've revealed to me that my hope has been misplaced, but that my hope has, and, and faith have been in the wrong things. Father, as an act of my will, I choose now to repent from putting my hope, from putting my faith in any of man's uh, abilities to rescue me, to save me, to lead me. Father, anywhere in my heart that I've made an agreement with anyone any person who's offered to rescue me. I break agreement with that now. I declare that you are my rescuer. I declare that you are a very present help in time of need. Father, anywhere that I've not picked up the right Goliath to fight. I repent now. I ask you now, Lord, to empower me to fight the Goliath that you've destined me to fight. Just let that sink in. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pray for you guys. Pray pray right now. You don't have to repeat after me anymore. Father, everywhere your church has been asleep at the wheel, we repent. Everywhere where we've abdicated the authority that you've given us, we repent. We say that you are our rescuer, God. We say that you you alone, no man, no military might, no political authority, <laughs> no place of power just Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you're the Lord of heaven's armies. I thank you, Father, that when Jesus called, when Jesus could have called upon the legions of the heavenly host, he said that wasn't the right time to do it, and he didn't do it. But, but Father, we have the heavenly host with us on our side that you've assigned to us, God. So, Father, I'm asking you to wake us up to the greater reality. I'm asking you to wake us up 
to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to be transformed. And just like Dave was talking about in the battle plan for 2020, it's you be transformed and you, you go transform things. You make your house right and then you go and, and attack the Goliath that God has put before you. So, Father, we just thank you. We thank you that we get to repent. We thank you that we get to change our mind. We thank you that we get to have a choice to turn from what we were doing to turn to what you are calling us to. So, Father, I just thank you for your goodness. I ask your presence would rest on everyone here, on everyone online, and anyone in the sound of my voice, that your presence of peace and your presence of, of authority and your presence of power would rest upon us in Jesus' name. So again, if you need to do business with the Lord, do it in your seats or come on up. We're going to have some more time to do that. So thanks, guys. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that 